right, well, good morning again. Let's turn in our Bibles to 2 Corinthians, and we will pick up in chapter 2 as we continue our journey through Paul's second letter to the church in Corinth. And as you guys head that direction, let me just remind you that uh, Paul has planted this church back in Acts chapter 18. And as he planted the church there in Acts 18, he actually spent some 18 months with the church in Corinth. This was his second longest stay of any church that he planted and then spent time with. The only church to do better than Corinth was Ephesus, where Paul spent three years. And so as he's here in the church in Corinth, he made them as his friends. They actually became like a family to him. And so Paul knew this church very, very well. And it was only after he left that he then received word of all the dysfunction that had taken place in the church in Corinth. They were uh, tore up from the floor up as a church, you might say. And so as Paul receives word as to the brokenness that had happened inside the church, uh, Paul was actually brokenhearted for them. And so he writes the letter of 1 Corinthians in large part to address correctively the issues that they had allowed to take place within the church. And so when we read through and spent several months studying through the letter of 1 Corinthians, it was in large part very corrective in nature. And yet as Paul had sent that letter, he in his heart was concerned, how did the Corinthians take it? Again, these were his friends, his family, and so he he knew them very well and he knew that they would take the word hard. And so as he is awaiting word as to how they had received this letter, it was only when Titus met up with him in Philippi when he found out. And he found out that not only did they not receive it well, but in fact, many of them flatly rejected his letter. And and in fact, uh, they went against the Apostle Paul to say, who is he to question us? In fact, is he even an apostle? There are all these other teachers. They give a much better word than Paul does. There's better speakers out there. And so they question Paul. They question his apostleship. They question his authority. They question everything about him. And as Paul writes this second letter, he writes instead of from a place of anger, he actually writes from a place of brokenheartedness. In fact, uh, very personally, he writes this letter to them. But as we arrived at the end of chapter 1, what he wanted to share with them is, look, uh, we didn't write to you to have dominion over your faith. But we are fellow workers for your joy, for by faith uh, you stand. It was by their individual faith they were going to stand, not Paul's faith. And so he he writes to them because he didn't want to have dominion. He didn't want to discourage them. He actually wanted to encourage them. And so in the Brock Ashley version, that's the BAV, anytime you see that, Paul didn't want to be a Debbie Downer. So this is like, Paul, hey, I didn't write this thing to bum you out. I didn't want to be a Debbie Downer. Instead, I actually wanted to encourage you. So as we arrive in chapter 2, this is the mindset Paul has as he's sharing with them. He says in verse 1, But I determined this within myself, that I would not come again to you in sorrow, for if I make you sorrowful, then who is he who makes me glad but the one who is made sorrowful by me? And so as Paul is getting ready to address them again, this is what he says to himself, I determined within myself I wouldn't come again to you in sorrow. Who is Paul talking to but he's talking to himself? He's giving himself a little pep talk. Have you ever been there? You ever been in that spot where you got to give yourself a little bit of a pep talk? You got to talk yourself up before I'm going to go have this conversation. Before I'm going to get into this, I got to begin to speak to myself just a little bit. Here's the news. If you've ever talked to yourself in that way, you're in great company because here's Paul speaking to himself. And in fact, I'm going to turn back to Psalm 103, another guy you might know named King David. And this is what he writes. And we often don't think of it like this. But in Psalm 103, this is David communicating to himself. He says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, 
and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. Who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies. Who is David talking to? He's talking to his soul. He's trying to give his soul a pep talk, a little uh, turbo boost, a little charge. Why? Because he is greatly distressed. And so as he's communicating to himself, he's saying, come on, soul, let's kick this thing into gear. Let's go. You see, there were days where it was hard for David to feel like this. You ever been there? But there's days it's just hard to praise. Like you want to, you want to get it up and going, but you're like, it's just too dang hard today. I can't bring myself to praise. And so this is a spot David was in. And it's it's possible that in this spot, David might have been in First uh, Samuel chapter 30. So in First Samuel chapter 30, if you go there, what you find is uh, David at this point, he's been running now for years from his father-in-law. His father-in-law, and he didn't have a great relationship. You see, he actually wanted uh, to kill him. Uh, not a great relationship with your father-in-law if he wants to murder you. And so David is now running away from his father-in-law. He's been anointed the king of Israel, and yet practically Saul is still on the throne. And so at this point in his career, uh, David has now ran away from Israel. He's now living with the Philistines of all places in a town called Ziklag. They've taken over this little town. He and his 400 merry men and all their uh, wives and their children and all their stuff, they're all living in this small community. And he convinced the king of Philistia that he was going out on raids against Israel. He was actually fighting for the Philistines. When in reality, David and his men were going out and they were destroying Philistine villages. They were completely plundering them, leaving nobody and nothing left. And so it was on one of those raids that as David and his men come back with their plunder, that they find the city that they lived in burned to the ground. There was nothing left. The women, the children, all their stuff, they've been taken captive by those pesky Amalekites. Nobody likes those guys. And so they had taken all of their stuff, and it was at this point in time where you arrive in 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse uh, 6. Now David was greatly distressed. Yeah, you think? Your wives are gone, your kids are gone. And, and listen to this. For the people spoke of stoning him, because of the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his son and his daughter. And so here's these 400 men, his best friends, and you know what their discussions were? We think we're going to stone David. Let's just take him out on the edge of town and let's kill him because of what's taken place. Now where is he going to turn? And the people, you can understand them being upset. I mean, their kids are gone. All their stuff is gone. They were grieved. And so this is the way they reacted. But David, he didn't turn to a man. He instead turned himself to the man at the end of verse 6. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Here's where David turned. In a time of great distress, in a time where everything looked bleak, where it looked uh, completely impossible, David went to the Lord, and maybe what he said was, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies. David went back to the Lord, and he actually reminded himself of all the good things that God had already done for him. He spoke to the Lord his own words. He just said, Lord, these are all the things you've done for me. And so instead of operating from a place of uh, despair and desperation with heaviness, he made the decision to say, bless the Lord, O my soul, and operate from a place of joy and happiness, even though the circumstances didn't look good. 
And so Paul is now giving himself this pep talk. He determined in himself, talking himself up, that he would go to them in joy, not in sorrow. For verse 3, And I wrote this very thing to you, lest when I came I should, ha- I should have sorrow over those from whom I ought to have joy, having confidence in you all, that my joy is the joy of you all. And so Paul says, look, I'm writing this thing because I actually wanted to create joy. I wanted you to be encouraged, not discouraged. And so I gave you 1 Corinthians. I gave you a list of things to work on with the hopes that when I came back, we could actually celebrate. Woohoo! That you did a great job with all these things that I gave you. In other words, Paul says, I left you with a honey-do list. Now in my house, uh, every now and again, it happens about once every decade, we allow mom to go do something without us. But as she leaves and she departs, and it's just me with the children's, we're left there together, she almost invariably leaves what she calls a honey, please do list. Here's the list of things I would like you to accomplish while I'm away from the kingdom. And so as she leaves and departs, uh, it's me there with the kids. But after a certain period of time, probably 15 or 20 minutes, that's enough for her to be away, she calls back to the house and she gives those joyous words, Hey, I'm on my way home! Yes! But then as we hang up the phone, what happens? You men, you know, uh, it's the it's the despair in our soul because there's the list and nothing has been done. So we now have the two-hour scramble to get everything done on the list because mom left it with us days ago and we've done nothing. And so this is what Paul's saying. I've left you the list. I was really hoping you would have checked at least a few things off so we could celebrate when I get back, when I arrive. Verse 4. Paul says, for out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have so abundantly for you. You see, Paul's written them this letter, but they didn't understand the tone Paul wrote from. And this is one of the danger zones in just texting, by the way. It's not that we're all children of the 21st century. We get it. You've got a text. But so often tone is not communicated in black and white. We have to speak either face-to-face or over the phone because often you can read something and read it completely wrong. And what Paul's saying is, you didn't understand my tone. What you took as anger was actually anguish. I was upset. I was brokenhearted. I was crying over this letter. I was so distraught for you as I wrote to you. And so he's explaining his frame of mind. He continues in verse 5 saying, but if anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me but all of you to some extent, not to be too severe. This punishment, verse 6, which was inflicted by the majority, is sufficient for such a man. So that on the contrary, you ought to rather forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. For verse 9, this end I also wrote, that I might put you to the test whether you are are obedient in all things. What in the world are you talking about, Paul? So glad you asked. He's referring back to his first letter, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He he wrote to them about such a man. There was a man inside the church in Corinth who had a, a relationship, actually was having an affair with his own stepmother. And so there's this guy in the church that's sleeping with his own stepmom, and it was so taboo that even the Corinthians, who lived a wild lifestyle, were like, yeah, that's messed up. (laughs) That's really messed up. But it wasn't that church leadership didn't know. 
they actually knew about this affair taking place, and they not only knew it, they actually applauded it. They applauded themselves for being so tolerant. I mean, look at the tolerance of our church, what we will put up with. You see how loving and caring we are? And when Paul wrote to them in 1 Corinthians, he said, you're not tolerant. You're not loving. In fact, you're selfish. Because you will not address a situation that needs to be addressed. You don't love this man. You're allowing him to bust the gates of hell wide open because you you don't have enough chutzpah to actually go and address the issue, to speak to him uh, directly. In fact, what Paul tells him in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5, is that they should deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. I mean, wow, that's heavy. I mean, this is what Paul said. This is how you actually love this guy. Deliver him to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. But here's the thing. Paul didn't end verse 5 there. He says that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. And so the reason to say something hard to this guy wasn't so that he would be destroyed for all of eternity. It was actually so that he could have eternal life. The point of this was so that the man would repent. So his life would be changed so that he would be transformed. And so Paul addresses this in this way. And yet, what we find is by the time we arrived to 2 Corinthians, they actually checked something off the list. They did what Paul said. They kicked the guy out. They finally did the hard thing and they said, enough's enough. They kick him out of the church. But now the man has repented. He's come back. He He's stopped this relationship. He's come back. He's begged for forgiveness. And now they won't let him back in. Isn't that amazing? That over and over again, these kind of things happen in churches all over. We can pretend like it doesn't exist, but it does. Where there's sin in the camp, and we won't address it, and we let it drag out, and then eventually, because people get angry enough, we address it. But then when it comes time to forgive, we don't act like the body of Christ at all. We will not then forgive. And so, what Paul says is this man is going to be grieved to the point where he's going to be so sorrowful, he may take his own life, because you've left him with no spot. He He's despaired. And so they would not forgive this man. And here's the thing. As, as the body of Christ, we are called to actually see people not restored. We're not in a ministry of restoration. Who wants to be restored to your sinful state you used to be in before? We're not in the restoration business. We're in the transformation business. Romans chapter 12, verse 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That as we are remade from the inside out, we're actually transformed. New creation, new life. But so many times in the church, we end up either falling on the side of complete tolerance and unloving people and allowing them to go directly to hell, or we get out the legal pad. We become a bunch of three-headed sin sniffers that want to write down every little thing. We're like the police. The police are always looking to file a report, right? Did you do this and this and this? All these things are wrong. But Jesus didn't call us to operate a police station. He actually called us to operate a hospital. We're called to be paramedics. Then when those come in and they're bleeding and it looks bad and they're about to flatline, we're called to put some pressure on that thing and introduce them to the great physician. Because the reality is every one of us has the same sin problem in our flesh. But praise the Lord for those who realize that what Colossians 2 uh, verse 14 says, is that the handwriting requirements that was against us, that was contrary to us, he's nailed that to the cross, and it's been buried for all of eternity. It's never going to come back again. 
And so as we apply pressure, we now have the opportunity to then exercise the beauty of forgiveness. Paul's going to continue with this idea in verse 10. He says, Now, whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant to his devices. What Paul is now addressing is uh, that Satan looks to actually pursue us in the midst of unforgiveness. That one of the ways Satan wants to act in the church is he actually wants to encourage us to not forgive one another. That unforgiveness is one of these things that creates division, not unity. Now, uh, this may come as a surprise to many of you, but Satan actually knows our own scripture. You realize that? He's read the book. He knows uh, what God has said in the book. In fact, what Matthew chapter 18, verse 20 says is this, and Satan knows this verse. It says here, Jesus speaking, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. And so he knows that if two or three are gathered, we actually have Jesus present. And you know what he wants? Jesus not to be present. So if he can divide us through unforgiveness, he can actually keep Jesus from having any kind of influence in our community. And what the Spirit wants to do is actually unify. Now, Proverbs, as Solomon is writing about this same idea of isolation, Satan's desire is to isolate us, get us one-on-one. Solomon writes in Proverbs 18, verse 1, a man who isolates himself seeks his own desire. He rages against all wise judgment. And so a man who isolates himself actually rages against himself. If you've ever seen a long-term isolation, what you find is people go crazy. They go insane in a membrane. And so despite what you think of what we've been through these last several years, and this is not political, I assure you, but through this pandemic, um, and, and it was very real. There were people that got sick. There were people that lost their life. I don't want to pass over that uh, lightly. But what I want to say is it was something far more deadly happening that was satanic behind the scenes, and that was Satan was using it to isolate people. And, and you can't deny the facts that there have been more mental health issues more suicides, all these things have taken place as people were isolated. We were meant to actually be together. We were meant to be in community. And that's the most deadly thing of all. Is that he wants to pick us off like this. This is one of his devices. And so what we find is that in the church in Corinth, because of their own unforgiveness, the enemy was having an absolute field day with them. They were being ripped apart from the inside out. Now, for some, you might say, well, here's the thing, only God can actually forgive sins. And that's true. For a story on that, uh, John chapter 8, verse 1, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now early in the morning he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. And then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act And now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? And this they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. Verse 7, so when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground, Verse 9, 
Then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing in the midst. And when Jesus had raised himself up, he saw no one but the woman. And he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. You see, John 3.17, which often gets overlooked because of John 3.16, says that God sent His Son into the world not to condemn the world, but so through Him the world might be saved. This is Jesus' entire mission, is to actually bring about salvation, to bring about forgiveness. And yet, oftentimes, we want to hold things over people's head that He's already forgiven them of. He's already washed them clean, but we want to continue to operate in unforgiveness. But what we should do is operate from a place of, if he's forgiven me, how can I withhold forgiveness from anybody else? When I look at my track record, i got to tell you, it's pretty awful. I mean, truly, it, it is not good. And yet, I've been cleansed. That man that used to be me, what Paul's going to write here in just a couple more chapters, in fact, chapter 5, verse 17, is this. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And so in Christ, while the old me, he doesn't have a whole lot to brag about. The new me, I've got Jesus. Christ in me, the hope of glory. And so the glory is actually inside me. Praise the Lord, I'm a new creation. And the question is, do we operate like that? Do we operate in a place of forgiveness or unforgiveness. Because if we operate in a place of forgiveness, Satan is completely disarmed. He's absolutely powerless by the name and by the blood of Jesus Christ. Now as we continue here in verse 12, Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened to me by the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit, because I did not find Titus my brother. But taking my leave of them, I departed for Macedonia. And so as Paul is communicating here, he said, look, I I left from Ephesus, I went to Troas. I was hoping to meet up with Titus to hear how things had gone in Corinth. And yet, he was grieved in his spirit. Even though a door to ministry had opened, he didn't stay in Troas because he wanted to hear how the Corinthians are doing. Now that might seem insignificant, but this is the apostle stinking Paul, guys. His whole goal in life was to plant churches and to share the gospel. And here he says a great door in ministry had opened. But he loved these Corinthians so much that even for Paul, who had a a door open for him, he walked away from it because he loved the church in Corinth and he wanted to hear his great concern for them. And so he left there and made his way to Philippi where he met up with Titus there in Macedonia And he got word how they received the first letter. Now, to Paul's surprise, they didn't receive it very well. He was concerned for good reason. And yet, verse 14, this is how Paul responds. Now, thanks be to God. Paul's response to hearing that the church questioned his ministry, his effectivity. They talked about how he was an ineffective speaker, and maybe he wasn't even an apostle. His response to that was, Thanks be to God. And i got to wonder, how often do I actually sing His praises when I'm heartbroken? It's a tough spot to be in. But here's the thing. 
about trials. I shared with you the last two weeks that as a Christian, um, you're either going to be going into a trial, you're in the middle of a trial, or you're coming out of a trial. There's no other spot to be in in life. And yet the reality about trials is they don't make us or break us. A trial just proves what's already in us. A trial just pushes to the top the thing that we try to bury deep down that we didn't want to deal with. We hope to just hide that thing and not talk about that thing. And yet as we get heated up, no different than the the metal that's heated up and the, the dross and the imperfections come to the top so it can be scraped off, this is what a trial does. And most of the time, uh, where it's actually reflected is out of my mouth. Jesus says in Matthew 12, verse 34, that from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And from the abundance of my heart, oftentimes, especially in a trial, uh, I get word of how I'm actually doing. I've tried to convince myself it's so much better, and yet, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And the, way, the way this should work is, as Jesus fills my heart, he then changes my vocabulary. As I came to know Christ, one of the things that went away the very first, I can't explain it, but, but as a guy who visited a lot of construction sites, uh, my language was not the best. And I had convinced myself this was the only way to communicate to these guys. They don't understand unless I talk to them in this way. And yet as Jesus came in, when I finally surrendered, uh, what I found was the words were gone. (laughs) I mean, it, it was a transformation. I can't explain it. It just came out different. And the funny part about it is as my vocabulary changed, so did the people around me. And when I showed up on a job site, you ought to see these big gruff guys trying to speak and not use curse words. It, they were the, it was the funniest thing. A lot of fudgy and a lot of shucky darn going on. I mean, it, it was funny to see, but yet that's the effect you can have on the community around you inside your sphere as Jesus fills you up. Now in Acts chapter 16, the Apostle Paul visits Philippi for the first time. And remember, he's writing this letter from Philippi, so possibly he's even considering this story as he's writing this, and he's praising the Lord in a difficult situation, because as Paul arrived in Philippi with Silas, things were going pretty well. They were delivering people from the enemy, and yet it wasn't the most popular. And so Paul and Silas, they found themselves thrown into a Philippian jail. Not just thrown into a Philippian jail, but what we're told is uh, they were thrown in the jail and their feet were put in stocks. We don't often get the visual of that, but your feet being placed in stocks, what they would do is they would set you on the ground. They would spread your legs out apart, you know, to that point to where you start to get that hip flexor or you start to get that cramp, and then they would lock your legs in that position. And typically, um, they would have already stripped you naked. And so here's Paul and Silas, naked, their feet in stocks on a cold prison floor. And if you go with me to Acts chapter 16, verse 25, This was their reaction. At midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. This was his reaction to being in in stocks. Mine would be crying out to the Lord, God, why me? And yet Paul and Silas, they were crying out, singing hymns, and the prisoners were listening to them. Think about the effect he was having on the community around him. And here's the thing. Verse 26, they hadn't read verse 26 yet. Verse 26 says, Suddenly there was a great earthquake, and the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately the doors were open, and everyone's chains were loosed. But Paul and Silas were praising before that, before the chains had fallen off. 
And yet the reality is for you and I, we're already victorious. You already know the end of the story. If you've accepted Christ as your Savior, the chains are already off. The question is, are we going to praise even though things don't look like they're praiseworthy? This prison that you're in, this is not permanent. At the very most, it's temporary. And so we are called to be people of praise and to have that kind of effect on the people around us. Now, as we continue, verse 14, he says, Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, we are the aroma of death leading to death, and to the other, the aroma of life leading to life. But who is sufficient for these things? And so Paul says here is that we've given thanks to God who leads us in triumph. The word there in the Greek for triumph was actually the Roman word for a parade. That they would have these great Roman parades after they had gone on to a tremendous victory. So Rome would go conquer another territory. They'd come back to Rome in triumph. They would have a parade and it would be a lot like, as a kid for me, the parades we would have that were the greatest were the victory parades after a state title, right? Where they line up in Casey at the top of the overpass and you get you, the championship team makes their way up on top of the fire truck and you get the whoop, 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 like that. It takes off and then everybody in the streets cheering. Yes! It's awesome. Now in two years of junior high and four years of high school, I rode on exactly zero fire trucks. My wife, on the other hand, in two years of junior high and four years of high school, she rode on five state championship fire trucks. So if that gives you any indication to where the athletic ability is in our family, uh, not me. But as she was up there on top of the fire truck and the whoop, whoop, whoop took off and people cheering in the streets, you realize those who were from Casey, man, it was a victory chant. Yes, champion, no time for losers, right? We're the champions. But not everybody felt that way. You see, because there were there were pirates from Cumberland County, and they weren't champions. They didn't feel that excited. And there were blue streaks from Martinsville, not excited. And there were there were lions from Marshall, better dead than red, who were not excited at all. Because to them, this victory parade was a reminder of defeat that they had actually lost. They were not victorious. And the same is true for us. As we are parading victoriously through this life, that there are those that will look at us and we will not smell like life to them. We'll smell like death. Because you're a reminder of death. Now, in the day of Caesar, he would ride through town and as they would ride into town, they would have this incense that would go all throughout the, the town. This is where the phrase, the smell of victory, actually came from. And he would have his entourage with the incense going all through the town. And you would know when Rome had a great victory just by the way it smelled. Now, for the Hebrews, those that would put off the incense, uh, they were the priests. The priests would actually carry the incense through the tabernacle and you would know, you would smell actually the presence of God because of the incense. And in Exodus chapter 19, verse 6, Moses says, And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. 
That might sound familiar because in First Peter, Peter says that we, as believers in Christ, are actually called to be a, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, a peculiar people set apart for Jesus. So we are actually the carriers of the incense as those who believe. Now, last week I shared with you um, that I had these two wonderful examples in my life, these two grandfathers that I looked up to. And I, I shared with you about my grandfather, uh, Mo Ashley, and looking up to him. But I, I also had a grandfather on, on my mom's side, Doyle Conley. And for uh, him and I, I was like the son he didn't have. I was the oldest grandkid. He had two girls. And so he took me everywhere. And so I've actually got a picture if this ever shows up. This is me at three months old on a construction site. I mean, him just dragging. Who lets their baby? I mean, really, who lets their baby go on a construction site at three months old? And yet, he would take me to places like this, if it ever actually reacts. But what I remember, there, there we go. There's a little guy, October 1979, riding around with him. But here's the thing. One of the parts I remember about getting to go places with my granddad was the way he smelled. You know, do you have some of those memories of your childhood? Of just remembering the way he smelled. It was the smell of, of Stetson Cologne and maybe a little bit of Marlboro's. But it Mostly Stetson Cologne. And, and I remember asking my grandma, I'm like, what? what is that smell? You know, what? what is that smell? And she said, oh, honey, that's good smelling stuff. That's what she called it, good smelling stuff. But it was this Stetson Cologne. And when I was around him, I'd want to smell like him. And so she would take a little bit of that and she'd put it on my face. And I'd go, ah! You know, because it was, it was aftershave. It burned my little face. But, but it didn't matter because I, I wanted to smell like him. But the only way to smell like him was to actually be around him. And you understand the same thing is true with our king. That the only way you and I can smell like him is that we have to be in his presence. It doesn't work if I don't spend time with him. If I'm not around him. I have to be around him in order for me to give off that same aroma. And so when you're encouraged by guys like me to, hey, spend time in your word, spend time in scripture, Spend time just in worship and in praise. It's not because I want to have dominion over your faith. I want you to have the opportunity to smell like your dad. Smell like your king. And, and, and as you are in that spot and you begin to smell like your king, it's a reminder to those who want to live that that's what life smells like. There were kids out here on this lawn that as you guys had the opportunity to serve with them, you smelled like life to them. Now there were others. You smell like death. Sorry. But, but the smell is one that is a reminder of both. And here's the reality. Um, don't get upset if you smell like death. You're simply just smelling like your dad. You're smelling like your king. Now, for most of you, your question is the same question Paul has right here in verse 16. Who is sufficient for these things? <laughs> the answer is none of us. None of us is sufficient. And yet, if you skip down into chapter 3, verse 5, here's what Paul says. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. It's not that we're sufficient. Actually, in your insufficiency, He makes up for that and makes you sufficient. All of our sufficiency we have comes internally from Jesus Christ as we accept Him and we're transformed by Him. And so He becomes our sufficiency. Now, verse 17, as we wrap up, 
For we are not, as so many, peddling the word of God. But as of sincerity, but as from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. And so there were those that had come into Corinth and they were peddling God's word. They were trying to sell it for monetary gain. You guys have seen them all over the airways, right? You know, just give to our ministry and Jesus can do wonderful work. Man, you get the feeling God's broke all of a sudden. Jesus can't handle his money. Clearly, they're always broke. They always need more. And yet, what Paul wants to communicate is this wasn't us. We weren't peddling the Word of God. We weren't selling the Word of God. It, it, that word peddling can also mean uh, watering down. Paul says, look, we, we were not watering down the Word of God. We had things to communicate to you, and we delivered it directly to you. And this is always something for us to pay attention to. That when you are attending a church, any place, this place, any place else, is God's Word being watered down? Or is it being delivered directly from the Word? And if it's being watered down, immediately alarms ought to be going off inside our head. Because the truth is, sometimes this is hard. Sometimes God's Word is difficult. It can even be, dare I say, offensive. And here's the thing, some weeks I'm even offended by it. I'm like, I don't want to talk about that. That's offensive. You know what? I needed to be offended. I needed to be knocked off my high horse a little bit. I needed to be reminded of who I really am outside of Christ. And so it's a good thing that He offends us and shakes us up from time to time. We need that in order to improve. And Paul says we communicated God's Word to you directly and with sincerity, without wax, even if you might have been offended by it. And here's how Paul could say that. He wasn't worried about anyone else's opinion. What he says at the end of this verse, we speak in the sight of God in Christ, not in front of you. It might look like it's in front of you because there's lots of you sitting here. But the reality for Paul is he wasn't trying to prove himself to anyone or worried about any man's opinion. Solomon says in Proverbs chapter 29, verse 25, that the approval of man is a snare. It's a trap. If you are trying to seek man's approval or you're trying to avoid man's disapproval, either way, it's a trap. You're never going to get there. But instead, as we get the opportunity to present the gospel, that goes for me and it goes for you. In any place you get the chance to share the love of Jesus, remember, you're not actually sharing it with them. You're sharing it to Jesus himself. You're communicating to an audience of one. Him and Him alone. This is what Paul is saying. I, I'm communicating to God in Christ Jesus. He's the one I'm actually trying to please. He's the one I'm actually sharing His words back to. And so there's no need to modify God's Word or apologize for God's Word because it's His Word that we're communicating. And so for you and for me, the reality is we might offend and we might even smell like death to people. And yet, we are not called to change people's hearts. That's the good news. You're not actually responsible for heart change. You can't change anyone's heart. He's the one that changes hearts. He's the one that operates from the inside out. And so if you're concerned ever about what you might say and how you might address someone in a spot where you, you feel uh, unprepared or not adequate, here's what the Word says. One final spot to go in Scripture. Mark chapter 13, verse 11. Jesus says, But when they arrest you 
and deliver you up. Do not worry beforehand or premeditate what you will speak, but whatever is given to you in that hour, speak that. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. So when we are persecuted, by the way, as you just live out your life trying to be Jesus with skin on, and it's offensive, you're going to be persecuted. It might look like jail. Likely it won't in our day and age, but it may soon. Who knows? But when it happens, Jesus doesn't say if. He says when you are persecuted, don't worry about what you're going to say. Because the Spirit will actually give you the words that you need to say in that moment. All you have to do is realize that in this life, as we finish our time out here, you all, if you believed in Jesus as your Savior, you realize you're just riding out this victory lap. That's the spot you're in. You, you, this is the NASCAR race. You're doing the smoky burnout at the end. It's victory for you. And so allow that to sink in, that you're in the midst of taking a victory lap. What kind of a victory do you want to convey? What kind of an aroma do you want to put off to those around you? And so, Father, we thank you. And we praise you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for the truth that comes from it. Thank you, Lord, for the truth that's revealed about us from within. Father, thank you so much for your love and your grace and your mercy. Thank you, Lord, that as we receive you, we are not, we are not your servants, but we're your kids. I read that in a book this week, and it meant so much to me, Lord, that I am not your servant. I'm your son. I'm a son that gets to serve lots, but I'm your son. Lord, help this group to realize that as we put off your aroma, it's because we get to smell like you, our dad. We get the opportunity to be around you. What a blessing it is. It's not a burden, Lord. Help us to shake all that mindset of just being your servant that has to grind away from us. But instead, we get to operate under the blessing of a son and a daughter. Lord, we thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.